Welcome to Iraq Legacy of War, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In this limited series, we're looking at the legacy of the war in Iraq 20 years after the US-led invasion in March 2003. Every day this week, we'll bring you a special episode. Join us as we look back at one of the most significant military interventions in modern history. And if you missed episodes one, two or three of this series where we discuss the road to war, the failures and chaos and the disappearance of a nation, do go back and listen now. On this episode, foreign correspondent Sekunda Kamani is joined by three experts to discuss how the Iraq war fueled terror and extremism around the world. He's back. Islamic State releases a video of what it says is its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, appearing for the first time in five years. The propaganda video released on Monday says that Islamic State has been defeated in Syria, referring to the final battle in the city of Baghuz, but that the war against what it sees as the Christian West and its allies is far from over. The battle between Islam and its people, with the cross and its people, is long. The Battle of Baghuz has ended, and in it, the barbarity and savagery of the Nation of the Cross towards Islam was clear. He promises to seek revenge for the killing and imprisonment of its fighters in Syria, and praises the deadly attacks in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, which killed 250 people, as well as a spate of smaller attacks around the world. Despite a 25 million US dollar bounty on his head, he's alive and he says he's still in charge. He looks humbled and much older than five years ago. Today, we're going to be exploring the impact the war in Iraq had on the growth of extremism in the Muslim world, how its troubled legacy factored into the rise of ISIS and what it meant for a generation of Muslims growing up in the West. To discuss all this, I'm joined by Lina Khatib, Director of Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House, and Joby Warwick, journalist and author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. And also with us is Tam Hussein, an investigative journalist and author of The Darkness Inside, a novel inspired by his own excellent reporting on jihadist foreign fighters in Syria. Tam, Lina, Joby, welcome to Intelligence Squared. To begin with, how did this war in Iraq, the US-led invasion, end up becoming about Islamist jihadist extremism? Because Saddam Hussein was not by any means a, a religious leader, was he? Lena, if you, if you want to start off, perhaps. Well, Saddam Hussein oppressed everybody. He oppressed the Sunnis, he oppressed the Shia. He was not a religious leader. But what happened with the invasion of Iraq uh, in 2003 is that because Saddam Hussein was Sunni, the Sunni community came to be regarded as automatically on the side of Saddam. And as a result, there was a degree of uh, discrimination going on, of sidelining of the Sunni community in general um, by the US and its allies uh, in Iraq at that time. And this stoked sectarian tension uh, in Iraq. I'm not saying that sectarian tension between Sunnis and Shia did not exist before, but it was certainly stoked. There was a degree of what we can call sectarianization going on 
as Sunnis felt increasingly excluded, increasingly angry, and some of them, of course, found in Islamist extremism a way out or a way to exact revenge. And this is when Iraq started seeing attacks uh, by Islamist jihadists on American troops who were in Iraq, for example. And Joby, talk me through, how did that evolution within the insurgency take place? Because Saddam Hussein's background, his political background, was one of a, a nationalist leader. Of course, he was a dictator. Uh, but, but how did the people who were nominally fighting for on, on behalf of his state end up then fighting for a, a, a jihadist and religious cause? Was there any kind of crossover prior to the invasion? Nothing that was too uh, striking, at least in my research. What's, what's really interesting to me is how, how both sides found an advantage or found an opportunity in this in the situation as it evolved after the U.S. invasion in 2003, you've got a dispossessed uh, Sunni minority that had been in power that was greatly aggrieved, uh, not just by the, the 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 loss of their leader, but also by the their their sudden inferior status within Iraq. And then on the other side, you have uh, a jihadist movement with some foreign elements, with particularly with this Jordanians or Kawi who had situated himself in Iraq and was prepared to take advantage of the security vacuum that, that occurred in, in 2003. And, and those two ended up seeing each other as, as allies. And I think a number of, of uh, Sunni former elites, members of the security establishment, uh, saw an opportunity to strike back, weren't particularly interested in the jihadist cause. It ended up being something that was convenient for them to, to, to jump onto. There were certainly some who, who did uh, kind of you know, appreciate the ideology. But I do think it was a marriage of convenience, and, and we see that not just in the early days of the insurgency, but straight on through the history of ISIS, where there are the sort of the professionals, the former soldiers, the former uh, you know security service officials uniting with the, the cause of jihadist and uh, able to perform a, a pretty powerful movement because of that that union. And, and as you both have pointed out, the, the, the conflict in Iraq became very quickly overtly sectarian. You had Sunnis who were targeting Shia places of worship with suicide bombings, Shia militias, carrying out extrajudicial killings in, in revenge, targeting the, the Sunni community. The time often throughout Islamic history, or, or in the Western reading of Islamic history, Sunni-Shia tensions are framed as having been a, 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 something that's always been there, something that's always been a problem, and, and the root of this conflict goes back to the, to the very birth of Islam, practically. Is that the right way of looking at the, the conflict in Iraq, or was the kind of sectarian language that we began to see following the US-led invasion, was that, was that something new and different that we hadn't seen before? I actually think to myself, of course, you're, you're right in the sense that, that that has always been within Islamic history and so on. But if you look at, uh, at least in modern history, a lot of, a lot in the Middle East had in a way come to terms with a lot of those issues. Iraqis had Sunni Shias and everyone else's neighbors. So I, I think, I think that's, that it was a certain language that was being used, especially by people like Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, if you want to use, I hate to use the word, but you know, the, the Wahhabi or Salafi Jihadi ideology really stoked up those things, which doesn't necessarily exist or wasn't used in the normal Sunni or normative Sunni discussion, but they really stoked those things up when there was no need for it, if that makes sense. Uh, and I think that that caused a lot of those divisions, which of course had had an opposite reaction on the on the Shia side as well. So what was essentially a political problem um, after the invasion turned into a sectarian 
conflict because of the language used by Salafi jihadists and so on. And the figure, this Abu Musa al-Zakawi, you both mentioned him, Tam and, and Joby, this Jordanian man, he led al-Qaeda in Iraq. And, and we'll come on to discuss a bit later how he paved the way for some of the most gruesome aspects of, of, of modern extremism, like beheading videos, for example. Am I right in thinking that even Osama bin Laden, of course, the founder of al-Qaeda, was at one stage concerned by just how bloodthirsty Zakawi was and, and, and the insurgency that he was leading was. So there, there is in Zakawi this a very unique figure, I think, in, in, the, in the recent history of the extremist movement. Someone who's, uh, who started out being not particularly, you know, not a scholar by any stretch. He had not finished high school. He was not educated. He was, had a thuggish, sort of gangsterish background before he became a, a mujahideen in, in the 1990s. And, and yet he's able to sort of see opportunities and then strategically take advantage of, of opportunities in, in, in Iraq that surprised a lot of people. And, and when we see later on this, this sort of this, the, the sectarian struggle that takes place and the, the violence between Sunnis and Shia, he was very deliberately trying to, 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 to stoke those fires. He set out very deliberately early on in the insurgency to attack you know, symbols of the Shia religion and you know, go after them, those mosques and those marketplaces. And we see in his writings very deliberately trying to ignite a conflict between, between these two groups and succeeded and managed to also, you know, attack everyone who could give some legitimacy to, to the occupation, going after the United Nations, the Red Cross, uh, Arab embassies, uh, and, and re really creating conditions in which that insurgency, once it, it caught on, really became an, a conflagration, and it uh, happened in, a, in a, an amazingly short period of time. And Tam, this 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 uh, reported letter by Osama bin Laden to Zakawi, is it, is it did it happen? Did it was it true? Was he really concerned by what was going on in Iraq? So they, I mean, there was concern. I mean, in fact, I know I know that uh, I got a book out uh, to the mountains, and in, when when I was researching that, I came across accounts or former friends of uh, Al-Qaeda, or Osama bin Laden, who w went back to Iraq, found the actions of uh, Zarqawi, you know, extreme. So I wouldn't be surprised that th th there was some concern within Al-Qaeda, whereby, you know, they were, they were alienating the people that were required. I just wanted to just pick up something that Joby mentioned, which is, which is an important point, I think. You know, this thuggishness was actually an attractive aspect, because... Remember, you've just, let's say, if you look at the Sunni population, you know, they've in a way been emasculated. Because I spoke to a lot, I've interviewed people that weren't necessarily for the behavior of Musab Zarqawi, but there was something manly, uh, manly about him. You know, he had complete disregard for the rules and so on, and he stood up for us. And that was something that attracted a lot of people, even though they may not necessarily uh, have you know subscribed to a lot of those ideas, and I think that's worth also mentioning that there was an element of emasculation as well, and this sluggishness in this person was was attractive. Very interesting, very interesting. And 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 Lena, just just your thoughts on how much of a break with existing jihadist traditions was this level of sectarianism, this overt attempt by Zakawi to to try and target all Shia civilians and, and ignite a, a war between the two, the two sects? I wouldn't call it such a break as much as it was a pragmatic move on Zarqawi's part because sectarianism has been used and is still being used by these groups as a tool to mobilize. 
So he just found one tool that was effective amongst other tools that he was using. I mean, he was a rather enterprising figure. I mean, some people might remember that uh, he had reportedly seven sisters and he sought to marry them off to key jihadist fighters in different places in Afghanistan, elsewhere. Uh, one sister ended up marrying a, another, another Jordanian who was known in Syria as Abu Julaibib, and he was uh, reportedly the third highest ranking official in a Nusra front uh, who came uh, into prominence around 2016 in Syria. So his approach to sectarianism must be viewed within this wider prism of him trying really to just spread his uh, influence and control using whatever tools were at his disposal. I think if you look at, I think Lena's spot on in the center, it was a pragmatic move because if you look at the way jihadists let to behave in Algeria, which was going on, in the 90s, they were just as, you know, they were just as brutal, you know, they were just as brutal. And they were using, you know, attack fear and sectarian uh, lines as much. So it wasn't necessarily out of line, uh, out of, you know, character, but it was just, okay, I'm going to use this tactics against the Shias because I can. And, I, you know, uh, his charisma was the thing that really attracted it. But I mean, I think she's spot on. It's, you know, had there been other tactics to split it, he would have used it just like the GIA did in Algeria. Interesting, interesting that some people are attracted by that level of bloodthirstiness and violence, others even figures as, as, as bloodthirsty as themselves, as, as Osama bin Laden, having concerns about it. Uh, but of course, you know, just as we're seeing the war in Iraq today has a much wider global impact than the, the countries immediately affected by it, so too did the, the war in Iraq. And that, that wasn't just the restricted to the Middle East, but to, to Muslim communities here in the West too. If you look back at the July the 7th bombings in London, in which more than 50 people were killed in 2005, that was carried out by a, a small group of British Muslims who cited the war in Iraq, amongst other grievances, uh, as one of the reasons for carrying out their, their atrocity. And, and Tam, a lot of your work has focused on uh, investigating and understanding uh, these kind of radical circles. Of course, they had been in existence in the West prior to the war in Iraq, but what impact did the did the US invasion have on them? I remember being in, in secondary school at the time, and it felt certainly, I mean, for everyone, but certainly for, for British Muslims, like a real generational moment. One of the things that it did do, I mean, I interviewed a lot of people on this, and one thing it did do was it reinvigorated the jihadi movement, for, for sure. Now, maybe, maybe I can give an example through a kind of a case study that I came across on a Swedish jihadist. His name was Mirsad Bektasevich. He was involved in a plot to blow up American embassies in 2005. Now, what was interesting about him was that he had been radicalized by two events. One was Bosnia, and the second one was the invasion of Iraq. Now, he had also been on the internet, on internet forums like At-Tibyan. At-Tibyan was a jihadi forum, which basically translated the work of the likes of Abu Bakr, and Naji and some of these, some of these guys that that, that were actually were the ideologues of ISIS before they became famous, as it were. Now he had become radicalized through these three events: the internet, the uh, Bosnia, and of course the invasion of Iraq. His fellow jihadist and Yunus uh, Zouli, who was also arrested in uh, in London, had basically demonstrated against the uh, invasion of Iraq and realizing they hadn't worked 
basically started to cut up these videos that was sent over from Iraq, and he would dis- he would uh, distribute that. So that's just an example of what what was going on there, and the impact that the invasion had. But it was a combination of it was a combination of pre-existent ideas as well as the invasion of Iraq and the internet, you know, which act, which made that accessible, right? Because at Tibian was a uh, was uh, was a translation. Uh, it was a place where these texts were translated. And Tam, how how much, from your understanding, did those Western Muslims who were in those, of of course, small radical circles, understand the nuances of the conflict? The fact that this, the conflict evolved from being an American-led invasion to actually a sectarian conflict between Shias and Sunnis in Iraq. Was that something that they were on board with and they embraced the sectarianism? or, or, Or was that something that just kind of slightly went over people's heads. I mean, you perhaps remember this famous jihadi rap video that was produced in at the time in the UK. Uh, and in it, the, these rappers were praising the 9-11 attacks and, and they were also praising Hezbollah, a, a Shia group. Uh, and they were also praising the insurgents in Iraq. And something like that, to me, suggests that a lot of people on the ground here in the West didn't quite get the, the kind of full nuances of, of what was playing out uh, in the streets in, in 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 Baghdad, for example, what was your understanding? There there was a lot of that, but at the same time, especially if you're within jihadi circles, the Shia Muslims were at best heretical and at worst outside the fall of Islam. And if they were outside the fall of Islam, then they were you know they were enemies, as it were. So if you look at you know if you look at how they might view that, it's kind of irrespective whether they were or not, it still, you know, because that, that language had already been there for them to embrace, if that so makes sense. So they were sense. already playing on a, on, a sectarian, on a sectarian grounding, basically. Because Salafi Jihadism plays, it plays a lot on, uh, on sectarian lines anyway, right? So it didn't matter whether they were sectarian or not, but there was a lot of, you know, when you're looking at these videos that were being brought over, you know, where Americans kicking in the doors in Fallujah and stuff like that, these things had an immense impact uh, because it was like, okay, see, we told you all of that stuff that we've been telling you about has come to pass. And that was the thing. And Joby, what, what about radical groups elsewhere in, in the Arab world, in the Middle East? How are they looking upon the, the events of, in Iraq? I presume it galvanizes them and it, it's a, a potential recruiting tool for them as well. Absolutely. And you can't underestimate sort of the, the importance of the, the symbols that were created by the, by the invasion and the immediate aftermath. So not just the invasion itself, but Abu Ghraib, which became just on an endless uh, you know, video loop in, in parts of the community. Uh, Guantanamo Bay, the, the sort of the images of uh, Muslim men in chains, in their orange jumpsuits, handcuffed in some, you know, in an island prison. It just, it was very, very powerful imagery. And, and people like Zarqawi exploited that very deliberately and, and very shrewdly, to be honest. And, and when you see Zarqawi really kind of coming into his own in the internet age, remember this is early 2000s, 2004, broadband is becoming more common, so these videos are widely shared. And his first beheading videos, so you know, tapped on all those images that had already inflamed so much of, of, of the Muslim world outside, uh, outside Iraq, outside the Levant. You know, and, and he used those very powerfully with the, the jumpsuits and sort of the direct 
allusions to to Abu Ghraib and and the atrocities committed there, which everyone in the world was familiar with at the time. So I think the the Americans made things so much worse for themselves and for the rest of the world just by these um, these awful moments that were caught on video and then just spread virally around the world. And Lena, am I right in thinking that almost ironically, many of these uh, Sunni jihadist extremists who were fighting in Iraq arrived there through Syria, controlled by the Assad regime, who's Alawi, um, so closer to, the, to, to Shia Islam or part of Shia Islam, and, and then later, in fact, went on to, to some of them to, to fight against his own regime in, in Syria. Well, not only that, uh, Assad actually, through his security services, mobilized some of these Al-Qaeda operatives but they did not know that they were being mobilized by the Syrian secret uh, services. They genuinely thought they, their orders came from Al-Qaeda, uh, full stop. The reason why his security services cooperated with Al-Qaeda in that indirect way, or actually direct way, but the, as I said, the operatives did not really know who they were actually reporting to, was that he would allow these fighters to cross from Syria into Iraq. And then sometimes his security officers would arrest them when these operatives came back to Syria. So it was a case of putting them in jail, then releasing them in jail, allowing them to cross into Iraq, allowing them to cross, cross back, depending on his interest in uh, causing havoc, basically, in Iraq. So it was one way in which he was exerting influence. And this is something that came into play again in 2011 when the uh, uprising against Assad happened in Syria because Assad was telling the world that this was not a peaceful uprising. This was an Islamist jihadist uh, terrorist uh, movement against him. And he proceeded to release from prison some of these operatives and officers from Al-Qaeda that he had been using on and off in, in, the, in that uh, indirect way for years to go in and out of Iraq. And it is these operatives who ended up forming some of the key jihadist groups that uh, became prominent um, in Syria after 2012, such as Al-Nusra Front or Jabhat al-Nusra. So here you have, again, Assad being quite pragmatic, yes, he may belong to a, uh, a Muslim sect that is against uh, Sunni uh, extremism, supposedly, but when it comes to war and, and tactical influence, um, we are seeing a pattern here in that these leaders will do whatever it takes if they think this will serve their objectives overall, even if it means cooperating with people who are ideologically opposed to them. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Remember, a lot of the, the clique that were involved with the Charlie Hebdo attack, the terrorists, they came from a group where some of those people had fought in Iraq, right? So they already fought in Iraq. Which was which was in, and died there, which was interesting. I myself uh, had had been in, interrogated because uh, I lived in the, uh, Syria for a long time. I'd been interrogated uh, in a place called Farah Palestine, which is a which is a you know uh, sec- where the security services take you to interrogate. And I was there, and they had a file on me. And then, and 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 a man came in, you know, he was he was clear, clearly an officer in full. Like you'd think he was a Salafi jihadi, you know, full beard, you know, the whole head again, everything else. And they were just talking, drinking tea. And I realized to myself, my God, this idea that, you know, there were these scholars in Aleppo, you know, talking about jihad openly. What, it's, not something you, it's not something that you read about. It, you know, it was, I saw it with my own eyes. This is what they were doing quite, you know, openly. And no one knew about it almost, you know. And these boys were, of course, you know, filtered in. Um, you know, to go to Iraq, and it was it was just really interesting to see. Fascinating it. and kind of deeply cynical manipulation of of uh, or alliance between between the disparate groups. That brings us to the fact that around a decade after the U.S. invaded Iraq, that that terrorist groups in the region started to really grow stronger than they had ever been, with ISIS capturing more and more territory, and most people. I imagine first heard about ISIS in connection with Syria, but it, but of course it also captured significant parts of Iraq. Its top leadership had been part of the I- Iraqi insurgency against the Americans. Joby, is it is it too simplistic to say that ISIS is part of the legacy of of the U.S. invasion of Iraq? You know, it's it's absolutely true in my analysis. I mean, the, sort of the beginnings of this group, which which as we've noticed, is is, is a bit is distinct from Al Qaeda. It's its own separate brand. Its own extremely brutal techniques as well as ideology. That comes directly because of of the Iraq invasion. And then ten years later, as you say, this this rekindling, this uh, kind of re-energizing of this movement takes place after the U.S. has essentially left the country, but in this vacuum that exists when. Uh, uh, I mean, the Maliki government, without dispute, is 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 being repressive toward the Sunni minority. So there's this uh, new grievance that's emerging in the country. People are beginning to view organized um, militant groups like uh, like the Islamic State as as allies. And then overlaid on top of that, you have this, this moment uh, of Arab Spring, which just happens to take place as the Americans are leaving, as ISIS is beginning to 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 find its legs again. Uh, and here next door in Syria is just a, a, a civil war, a country that's that's lawless in many regions, that's awash in weapons, that's become kind of a, a, a call to the to, to the Muslim world to sort of send recruits and help in this fight to to protect you know other Muslims. And so it was a perfect moment and, and ISIS took advantage of it and they managed to 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 seize and hold territory in a way that no jihadist group had ever done before. And 
Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the, the leader of ISIS, the caliph of, of the ISIS caliphate, he had spent time in a prison camp for jihadists in Iraq for having fought against the Americans. Is, is, is that right, Lena? Uh, yes, Baghdadi has, uh, according to many, many reports, also spent time as a uh, prisoner when uh, the Americans had held him uh, in Iraq. And this just goes to show that the way the U.S. had been operating in Iraq uh, left a lot to be desired, to put it mildly, you know, in terms of the approach to Islamist jihadism and Salafi jihadism. I mean, he was detained in Kambuka in 2004, and he actually joined al-Qaeda in Iraq in Kambuka. Um, so here you have, Inside you know... Yeah, inside the prison. I mean, he was already a Salafi jihadist, but it was in prison that he actually officially joined Al-Qaeda. And I, I think this this sums up, you know, a lot of the blunders, I think, that the U.S. Uh, invasion of Iraq ended up with and which had huge catastrophic consequences for the region. And how much, Joby, do you think is is fair? To what extent is it fair to put the blame on, on the U.S. for, for their blunders uh, and to what extent was it, should we be placing the blame on the dynamics that were playing out in the Middle East that the, the Americans couldn't have predicted? You know, I, I think there's just, there's no argument to me that the U.S. was not a major contributor to these these problems, you know, beginning with the invasion itself. And, and, and in my reporting, there's so many warnings, so many, you know, regional leaders, you know, urging the Bush administration not to do it or, you know, predicting, forecasting kinds of problems that would probably emerge after a, a relatively quick U.S. victory, which is exactly what happened. But again, uh, you know, all these other mistakes that occurred, including, you know, as, as Lena was describing, these, uh, you know, unofficial jihadi universities that, that emerged within these massive prison camps. And I've spent time, you know, interviewing some of the, the guards and officials who work in these, these uh, prison camps, and, and they were aware of the problem. But you have a whole generation of, of future ISIS leaders who, who came together, who created networks, who encouraged one another within the confines of these massive, you know, largely outdoor prisons in, in the southern Iraqi desert. And, uh, and it became kind of a, a common experience and a way to, to, to refine ideology and approaches and methods. And it was, you, you can't underestimate the importance of, of that prison experience and what ultimately became ISIS 2.0 with, with its reemergence in 2014. I covered a lot of the early stuff in um, reporting in Syria. And what we found was that a lot of the Syrian, Syrian guys that had initially just picked up the weapons, they weren't necessarily skilled. They, they'd picked up stuff from YouTube, you know, Palestinian videos of how to make bombs and so on, but they had no skill whatsoever. And then along comes you know, the jihadists, you know, 10 years in the University of Insurgency, who just knew, knew their stuff. And, and if you think about soldiers, they get to do tours of duty, go back to civilian life where they can feel, you know, sort of normal. These guys are, you know, 10 years, you know, what does that do to a human being just generally? And they come with all of these skills uh, to take on the Assad government. And they're talking the language of Islam, which they're like, which for the first time, a lot of these guys can express their religiosity without getting picked up by the secret police. There's this marriage that kind of works. So when I was in Latakia, very, very quickly, you had Iraqis taken over Latakia because they were, the more, they were the most capable. It just struck me that, you know, that insurgency, that, that those lessons learned 
created a lot of these problems in Syria as well. So it's almost as if the the, the Iraq war, as brutal as it was, was it was a precursor, really, certainly for for the jihadists who were taking part in it, for an even more brutal conflict with the rise of ISIS. And 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 Tam, as you say, you you spent a lot of time covering the conflict in Syria. I know you've also spoken to lots of the young Western Muslims who ended up joining ISIS. How prominently did the war in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, feature in their minds? Because I imagine many of them would have been very young when it when it took place. But was it still something that they were conscious of and talking about? Or was that just a, a part of ancient history to them? No, no, no. Without, without doubt, that was one of those things. They might not even know. I mean, what you find with a lot of the youngsters, okay, so you've got two, you've got the, the youngsters, you know, weren't even born or were born in the noughties. They look at it, they just truncate history. You know, that's, that's the thing. They just put all of that, everything from Afghanistan up to Iraq is just jihad, it seems. They're not very historically aware. So Iraq definitely plays a role. But when you see the older lot, so for example, Muhammad Mwazi, Jihadi John, I know from speaking to people who knew him, that he was very much Im- impacted by that. So when you saw him beheading all these journalists, I mean, that's, that surely is a, re- a reflection, uh, you know, of Nicholas Berg and the homage to Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and so on and so forth. It's not just Guantanamo, it's a lot of those things too, if that makes sense. Because, Joby, a lot of the things that we associate most commonly with ISIS, like these, those grim beheading videos that Tam was, was talking about, they first, I mean, perhaps people now would think that they've always been a part of, of, of jihadist culture and propaganda, but they really first became prominent during the, the conflict after the invasion of Iraq. Is that right? Yes, it is. And, and I think ISIS and its later generation of leaders would play homage very deliberately to the past. And you, you saw in, in 2014, 2015, when ISIS was really on the march, uh, them doing things like creating kind of Cub Scout, Boy Scout-like organizations. They called them Zarqawi's Cubs. Uh, this, this idea that we're creating little miniature versions of, of, of this guy who was our, our great inspirational leader. And many of the videos from that period would include you know, audio clips from some of Zarqawi's messages and sermons. And certainly you saw so symbolically the, you know, the orange jumpsuits you know, continue to be something that, that, uh, that was exploited for its emotional power and, and still see that now in, in, in videos that, that are circulated among these groups. And so, yeah, those, those echoes are, are very much there. The, the, you know, ISIS ended up having other grievances and, and other enemies from Assad to so the Iraqi leadership to really everybody in the, in the neighborhood. But it was this this kind of foundational generation that that, that uh, created these symbols that became very important in ISIS's new recreation as as what we know it as today. And Lena, when we look at the, the the violence that ISIS perpetrated, those who were taking part in it were they all, from your understanding, religiously motivated and and fervent believers in this ideology, or was there a continuation of of what? You and Joby were talking about it in the in the early stages of the conflict in Iraq of a, a marriage of convenience between Sunni elites who had links to to Saddam Hussein's regime and those who were, let's say, true believers in the cause. ISIS actually was and remains a uh, a hybrid uh, group in terms of its composition and in terms of the motivation that drove people to join it. 
Um, at the level of the leadership, you had uh, Al-Qaeda veterans who had fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, joining forces with former Ba'athist officers. And these officers were obviously secular. And yet they saw in ISIS an opportunity to exact revenge on uh, the government that uh, took over uh, Iraq after the ousting of Saddam. At the level of the membership, you had people who believed that actually ISIS represents the true path of bin Laden. So yes, although ISIS did not follow the path of bin Laden in terms of following the leadership of Al-Qaeda, it was its own thing, it presented itself as being the real deal and said that Al-Qaeda has actually lost its way. And of course, with bin Laden being dead, there was no way to really disprove that. So when it comes to some of the very religious uh, adherents who really looked up to bin Laden, they, some of them thought that ISIS is actually the pure path to follow. So there was an element of uh, strong ideology driving people. But then you had others who joined ISIS because they saw in it an opportunity to exact revenge either on the Assad regime in Syria or on the corrupt uh, authorities in Iraq. And these people were not motivated by religion or ideology. They were motivated by grievances, economic, social, and political grievances. Um, and then you had people who simply thought this was an Islamist utopia that they were going to. So you had a mixture of factors. And ISIS really tried to appeal to all of those kinds of people to draw them and, and mold them in its uh, extremist mold. And now just because both you and Tam have touched upon it, and I think for, for some of the listeners, it's not always clear that the differences between Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Joby, perhaps you just explain in a nutshell, how did those two organizations grow apart? If you look at the history of those two groups, it's, it's really striking how different they are because the, the Al-Qaeda was started by people who were essentially a professional class. You have Osama bin Laden himself, an engineer. Uh, Ayman al-Zawahri was, was, a, was a medical doctor. Uh, there were people with education and training, and it was a kind of a, an elite exclusive society with very big ambitions, uh, very well controlled and, and very good security, and, and went about to sort of carry out acts of, of, of spectacular acts of, of terrorism. You know, ISIS was much more organic, but it was much more kind of from the from the street. It always had the sort of character and personality of its founders, Arkali, which is to say, it was really attracted to the sort of the, the most brutal acts. It didn't care so much about about the ideology. It was it was very flexible in its doctrine. Uh, Zarqawi didn't understand the Quran that well, so it was quite okay to to sanction things that uh, that were forbidden by the Quran, such as the burning of human beings. And so they, they did come up through a different route. Uh, I think in the long run, ISIS became much more nimble because of its ability to exploit new technology. They became very good at, at, at video messaging, very good at the use of the internet. And that continued you know, right up to this time, even though the, the, the caliphate is gone, so the virtual caliphate still exists and they're, and they're very good at promoting their message. Uh, but these are very distinct lineages. They've, at many points in their history, have not gotten along very well. Uh, Bin Laden invited Zarqawi to sort of join the movement to become the first Al-Qaeda franchise in, in 2004. But very soon after that, they became upset with Zarqawi's tactics and his use of uh, brutal methods. And, and they tried to get him to reform. And when, when that didn't happen, they became essentially enemies. And that's, the, that's what you see now with, with Al-Qaeda's offshoot groups and, and ISIS now. They really not only don't like each other, but they actually fight each other. They're, they're combatants. 
really interesting. I remember I remember speaking to a Syrian or a jihadist who was fighting in Syria, who's linked to Al Qaeda, talking about ISIS, and and he said, you know, Sikandar, the, the the good thing, the only good thing about ISIS is that they show people that we Al Qaeda are the true moderates. We're the middle path. So I mean, that that really I think tells you a lot about how Al Qaeda would 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 view ISIS as being so so extreme that even that they're beyond the pale even for a group that the majority of the world and the majority of the muslim world considers beyond the pale themselves um but now you know looking at it in in 2023 20 years after the us led invasion of iraq isis has pretty much lost all the territory it, it controlled in the middle east yes there are sporadic attacks but it's nothing compared to what it was before the branches in parts of Africa and Afghanistan are still active, but it, it, it does seem that compared to 2015, 2016, the high point of the jihadist phenomenon has almost been reached with ISIS. And when that collapsed, a lot of the energy around the movement disappeared too. And global dynamics now seem so, so different. Do you think, uh, Lena, first of all, that, that jihadist extremism has now disappeared as a global force? And, and does that also mean, I suppose, that the, the legacy of the war in Iraq on that movement has now also disappeared too? I wouldn't say it has disappeared. These things go up and down um, in, in prominence, depending on uh, dynamics on the ground. What, one of the key things we have to remember is that a lot of people joined ISIS and also Al-Qaeda out of undergoing political, social, and economic grievances. And therefore, we need to think at root causes. What are the root causes, the drivers that push people to find these groups attractive? And when you think about the resilience of the regime of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, which is still killing its people and oppressing them, when you think about the corruption that is rampant in the political system, in Iraq and how it's disadvantaging people. And when you think about the other grievances that exist uh, elsewhere, not just in the Middle East, but in Africa in Asia and elsewhere, you will see that the drivers have not disappeared. And that means the potential for these groups to mobilize people on this basis remains out there. The second thing is, although ISIS has been defeated militarily, it has not fully disappeared. There are still fighters, thousands of them in fact, around in Iraq and Syria, and a lot of them have now gone underground. Some of them have literally shaved their beards, and they are uh, just keeping a low profile and operating as a kind of clandestine mafia to keep the economic uh, uh, flow going, meaning some income for ISIS through uh, all kinds of economic transactions like trade, for example. And they are waiting for a moment to kind of come back. And we shouldn't forget the uh, camps uh, in which former ISIS operatives um, are held and people affiliated with ISIS are held like al whole camp um, on the Syrian-Iraqi border. We've seen that in American detention camps in, in the past, the radicalization became rampant. And, and this is also a risk that we are witnessing right now. So there are many factors that lead me to believe this is not over yet. Maybe, yeah, the height of it happened a few years ago, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's necessarily not going to come back in any way. And Tam, jihadism can often be a, a rather short-lived career because it ends in prison or, or, or death. Are, are we approaching a stage where people who remember the war in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, those images of 
prisoners being humiliated in Abu Ghraib prison by uh, American soldiers. Is that generation dying out amongst the jihadists and, and now that legacy no longer has the kind of relevance it, it, it once does? Or are these kind of stories being passed down in, in folklore, even to those who are perhaps not even born at the time? I think they're being memed because I, I come across them really? <laughs> on Telegram and stuff. So I think they've been memed, man. I think they've, you know, when you look at a lot of a lot of what's going on, you realize that some of these images are living on on the internet. I mean, they are still, you still hear, you know, speeches and stuff that was done in the 90s that are still being memed. So the images that came out of Iraq have been memed, Abu Ghraib, all of these, you know, look what they did to us. Here's a picture of, an old, you know, of the guys naked and look what these infidels did to this person and so on. And this is still on the internet. So And shared by people who I suppose certainly weren't, weren't watching those images at the time. Yeah, well, probably three years old at the time, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Or, you know, 10 years old at the time, or God knows, you know, like, but the point, these are be, these images are still being shared and, and, you know, passed down. You know, that's something that, that, that needs, needs addressing. What Lena said is absolutely right. You know, these camps have got children. You know, there's children, a whole generation of kids in a camp. Can you imagine how, what's going to happen to them when they come out? And, and Joby, just, just looking back now, 20 years on i mean one of the the supposed reasons for for, for the u.s invading iraq was to make uh, you know in quotations marks the the world a, a, a safer place and, and to and to destroy alleged links between terrorists and saddam hussein's regime but you know from what, what everything that we've been discussing it, it seems like the legacy of the of the war has been making the world and the region a much more dangerous place yeah, I think that's absolutely true because what, what has happened to this movement, it did not go away by any means. It, it metastasized. So it's, it's like the, the coronavirus. We suddenly have many more strains than we did when we started. Uh, it's in many more parts of the world. And part of what continues to resonate is not just uh, sort of the means, as, as Tam was, was rightly describing, but also just the idea, the idea of the caliphate it was a very powerful one. And it's you see it championed in 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 places in africa for example where where isis is very much alive there's there are franchises there that are that are robust and growing and able to to at times uh, season whole territory and they're still motivated still uh inspired by those messages from 20 years ago so the idea of making this problem go away was naive to say the least joby tam lena thank you so much that was tam saying lena khatib and joby warwick I'm Sikanda Kamani. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Iraq Legacy of War, a mini-series by Intelligence Squared. Join us for the next episode of the series when we put Tony Blair on trial. All episodes of Iraq Legacy of War are now available to Intelligence Squared premium listeners. If you would like to hear the rest of this series now, ad-free, please subscribe in the link in the show description. This series was produced by Farah Jassat and Catherine Hughes, with artwork and editing from Catherine Hughes.